What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 141. Today, we're going to be discussing the Harrison family murders. This is a Canadian case. Yes, it is. It's the first one we've done, actually, from Canada. The first one? Yeah. No way. I'm pretty sure it is. I don't know. You guys probably would know better than us. <laughs> That's true. So. I feel like we've covered at least one Canadian case. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I know I've covered a few on my channel, but yeah, but maybe the, not on here. I don't think so. Well, this one is super, super, super fascinating. We're really excited to talk about this and we've been waiting a while to talk about it because last week when we went to record, we had all types of audio issues with our setup and camera issues and we've been having issues for a while, but Josh really went to work the last week and <laughs> ironed all those issues out. Hopefully, hopefully the hopefully. sound is yeah, better I'm crossing than my fingers. even it is normally the sound. Yeah, hopefully the sound is improved. I mean, it'll probably sound like some of our earlier episodes. Uh, we completely changed the basically the processing uh, we were using for the microphones and everything. So our voices will probably sound a little bit more radio like hopefully, which hopefully it's more pleasant to listen to than before, because I know before we were having all kinds of issues of voices cutting out like mid sentence. We'd be like saying stuff and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden the mic would just like completely shut off and especially mine. Yeah, mine it was, was really, really bad. bad. Yeah. So we're just like, good. rather than keep, you know, bad quality going forward, like I was just like, let's, mm -hmm. we need to take a, a little week off. And so I can go and try to figure this out because this is just yeah. driving me insane. Yeah. And I'm glad we did because this is such a good case. I did not want it to have random. We were starting to have buzzing when we went to record. So we were like, okay, we cannot. Yeah. It was just you know, out of control. This. So hopefully it's worth the wait though. I, it sounds better to me already just in my ears. Hopefully we don't have any issues when we, you know, put it through the sound processor and everything like that. But <laughs> I really hope so. <laughs> I've just been going through it, man. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a tech guy and everything, but like this audio stuff is a whole yeah. different, different world that I don't fully understand yet. So I'm just trying to figure stuff out on my own and with, you know, mm -hmm. everything going on, like it's not easy to just go find somebody to come and mm -mm. do this for us. So hopefully it's better. I'm really hoping it's better. I think you did a good job. Well, we'll see, <laughs> <laughs> but let's go ahead and get into, uh, we got a couple of really interesting sort of news stories that have been going on in the past couple weeks. Yeah. Last month on November 18th, basically the highway patrol in Utah was flying around in a helicopter. They're actually surveying the bighorn sheep population uh, for the Utah's wildlife agency. And that's when they discovered a very strange metal object, roughly 10 to 12 feet tall, that's embedded into the ground, just in the middle of, of nowhere. And mm -hmm. it's basically, people are calling it a monolith, but it's really just more of like a, like a statue, almost like a metal object. Cause like a monolith, I think generally means carved from stone. Mm. is what a monolith actually is so these are all made out of metal but there's just this tall metal object embedded into the ground in the middle of the utah wilderness essentially yeah in red rock country so the ground is really hard really rocky yeah. so it's odd for it to be you know so perfectly in there and obviously we have no idea who put it there or why we don't really know i mean on first glance you think okay somebody's just it's one of those random art installations, right? Like people do that. We, we've, wow. I think we've talked about that one in Africa that like plays the, uh, the Africa song over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say at first glance, a lot of people thought it was aliens. Okay. I don't sure. think a lot of people thought art installation right away. <laughs> the well, internet yeah. definitely was thinking it's aliens. Cause I mean, it is kind of weird and it's been out there for a while though. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is like when you go back on Google earth and you search, 
between August 2015 and October 2016, uh, that's where the object actually shows up. Mm-hmm. So it's been out there for a number of years now. We just only only now did we just discover it. So I wonder if anyone has ever come across it or if it's ever been reported before and it just now is going viral or if it was the first time that it's, you know, we found it. But I guess from so we just know that it was there because of Google Earth. So right. it's not like it was reported early. No, I, I think it's the first we're actually hearing about it, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, Google Earth is always taking images of of the Earth. So that's how people are going back to see. Because, I mean, you can go zoom in through mm-hmm. the satellite images and actually see the little monolith uh, from way back from a couple years ago. Huh. So, so they discovered it and then it kind of went you know, crazy online. Like, what yeah. is this thing? And then a week later, it's disappeared, mm-hmm. completely vanished. Mm-hmm. Some have speculated that this monolith is a piece of a sculpture by a, a late artist named John McCracken, who is known for making this plank-shaped stainless steel pieces, very similar to what this monolith in Utah looked like. But again, we don't know for sure. There's no way to prove that there's any connection between this artist and you know this monolith. Uh, but you know, once this kind of went public, people started hiking out there. Like hundreds of people started hiking out to <laughs> the location of this monolith in the desert. And unfortunately, it was very detrimental to the the area around there because there's apparently I think this area there's like no trails, there's no uh, like restrooms or anything like that. So people were hiking out of it, making YouTube videos, TikToks, you know, whatever, and just like shitting along the way. Shitting? Yeah, because there's no bathrooms, and apparently somebody <laughs> said there's a shit littered all around where this monolith was. Stop. Yes. That is disgusting. Because people are people <laughs> are so savages, humans. man. They don't care. Oh, I hate that. What is wrong with people? So it actually did way more bad than good, unfortunately, because the the ground is all trampled over and stuff. Wow. This was like a protected area. That's some nice so, art right there. So it's like, why would why would somebody put art out like? Think about if you do think about this whole artist theory, you know, that this Uh is just somebody's art that is going and placing these monoliths around Mm -hmm. and why and why would you put it somewhere where it's so inaccessible to people that they might never see it. And I mean, they did see it. They did find it. So, well, isn't that kind of the art of it? I guess. Yeah, I guess there is some weird spot. Mm -hmm. It's unusual. It's not supposed to be there and it's unexplained. And art is supposed to attract people to it, and it clearly did. It did. It attracted a lot of people. Even though it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But in public lands that you're not supposed to go into. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really not great of the artist to put it there. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, because they had to clean up a lot of shit. Ew, that's so nasty. Because people are going out there. The fuck is wrong with people? Looking for this thing. And apparently one YouTuber went out there and they saw by bitch written in this uh, sand where the monolith once stood (laughs) (laughs) with tire marks. And then on December 1st, another YouTube video was uploaded and it showed an actual group of individuals removing the monolith Uh, on the night of November 27th at about 830 p.m. said our team removed the Utah monolith. And was it just, you know, people that were signing up to do that or... I believe it was, was, it the was team they don't give any information they specifically said we will not include any other information answers or insight at this time and it's literally if you watch the video it's just them removing it like it doesn't really explain much yeah of let's who watch they are. it 
cables is either. Um, the safe word is run. <laughs> Looks like they were not authorized to do that because well, they're doing it in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's not something where they were sent out there to remove it or they're part of the art installation itself. They could be, I guess, but maybe I doubt it though. I mean, it's it, probably just someone that wants to make their YouTube channel get some views. Mr. Slackline. Yeah. Meanwhile, the day before the Utah monolith video removal was uploaded, another monolith was discovered in Romania near an ancient fortress in a local holy mountain. And this one was also on private land in a protected area that happens to be an archaeological site as well. And it's unclear how long that one had been there for before being discovered. Interesting. No one knows who put it there. And well, what it's are the not chances the same we, one, though. Yeah. What are the chances we're just coming across another one, though? I bet it was installed after the other one was found. Would I be feel my like guess. it. I feel like it. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say because there's no way to really know for sure whether yeah. or not or how long it's been there or who put it there. If you just discover it all of a sudden. That's true. And this one has little circles like burnished into it that's weird they're almost like squigglies you know yeah just but it's a similar type of structure it's like all metal looks about to be you know 10 feet tall or so maybe a little bit shorter than the other one but literally the day after it's discovered it disappears and it's gone again so i mean that that Um, you know creates a lot of mystery around this like who's putting these up who's taking them down and as you saw with the utah monolith i mean that thing was not that hard to take down Mm-mm. So in my opinion, if alien, if this was, cause I, I, I get it, you know, it kind of seems like maybe this is like mm-hmm. signs of an alien <laughs> invasion or something or, or something big is about to happen. And this is like, or it's the like sign a recording device to monitor us. It's like implanted into earth and it's like taking samples from the ground or something. That's what I thought. <laughs> That'd be cool. Well, it's been, I don't understand why everyone's freaking out because the one in Utah has been here for years. So like, Mm-hmm. Okay, so we just discovered it. Don't you think the likelihood of people being like, oh, they just discovered this random piece of art that's been here for years. We should fuck with people and continue to plant them around the earth. Like, that's kind of my yeah. thought. It's like, it's been here forever. Mm-hmm. No, not forever, excuse me. Like, for, you know, like three, four years now. So, like... Like, maybe the others are just copycats right, exactly. of the first one? Yeah. Okay. That could be possible, for sure. That's what it seems like. I mean, if you look at the pictures, they're clearly different. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like the same person or the same thing is is making these and putting these here so only a day after the romanian monolith was discovered on december 2nd another group of people found a third monolith while they're hiking pine mountain in california then on december 3rd there was this group that traveled over five hours to where the monolith was and took it down themselves but this group live streamed their entire thing and they were acting fucking crazy during the whole thing. And it was mostly footage of them driving around while singing military songs and saying really racist shit. In fact, they actually said, Christ is king in this country. We don't want illegal aliens from Mexico or outer space. So let's tear this bitch down. And after taking it down, they set up a cross in its place. So this whole thing has just gone completely rogue here. And then they tried to steal the monolith. They carried it about halfway down Pine Mountain before they were seen by someone else who was at this site. And they dropped it and hid in the bushes as soon as they realized they were caught. And in the video, they speculated to their viewers that perhaps it was political enemies that caught them. 
and eventually they left the area, leaving the monolith behind. They also talked about calling the police and making a false report about people who were following them, but they ultimately decided not to. And then the next day, the monolith was gone, and no one really knows who took it. That's wild. I wonder how I mean, heavy that thing is. Yeah, I know. It looks like it'd be super heavy. I yeah. mean, from the other video, if it's anything like that one, I mean, you need a group of men to to carry to that out it, of there. Yeah, yeah I mean, mm-hmm. it's got to have some weight to it if it's all metal. But then on December 4th, a man in the Pacific Northwest, Jeff Jacobs, caught some amazing photos of what appears to be a monolith in the sky while driving home from work in an area in northwestern Idaho. And he said it was only there for a few seconds before it went away. And the photo is, is pretty, pretty crazy, honestly. But how do we know that's not Photoshopped? Yeah, it looks a little fake to me. It does. It looks actually Have you ever really seen fake. like a dark object like that in the sky? I mean, I haven't clearly, but... I mean, who knows if that's, yeah, that just does not look real. Photoshop experts, let us know what you think, because that looks like something you could whip up pretty quick to me. It really does. Especially the bottom part. I feel like it's just people jumping on this phenomenon of this monolith thing, being like, oh, I saw one in the sky. It must be. (laughs) It's a sign. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we still don't know why or what, you know, is moving these monoliths around the, the world. Well, if it's really an art installation, that's really sad that it's gotten to the point where these guys like stole it and made it a whole racist thing. And now it's just becoming negative and people trying to get clout and faking things. Yeah, it's really interesting, though. I mean, my my thing with it is the fact that it's relatively the same type of object showing up in a bunch of different countries, you know, like Mm -hmm. clearly it's not the same group or same individual, most likely. Maybe there's like a secret order of the monoliths or something that all have these metal monolith structures that they go out and put out there yeah maybe it's something like that because i mean even as of today of recording there was a monolith in the uk on the isle of white that was discovered if you look at that on the isle of white yeah on the beach oh white yeah the isle the island ght yeah magical structure appears on the beach that just showed up today just now wow interesting so another one so I wonder mm, if there's any new ones, comment below, because I'm sure there will be. And according to most sources, they're saying this is some type of art, stri- like mm. weird art thing that is just going viral right now. So people are are doing it. Yeah, here's some more photos of it, too. Here's people standing next to it to give you perspective on it. Oh, yeah, it's really big. So this is the one that in the UK they just found. That one's pretty. It's really reflective. Yeah, that's pretty cool, honestly. Yeah. This one looks like a mirror. Yeah. Like a mirrored That's structure. That's pretty, honestly. It is. So, I mean, <laughs> what's funny is like, if this were aliens, I just feel like these would be like having some type of glow to them. There'd be, you'd <laughs> feel some type of energy and they wouldn't have like, they took a photo. I saw this going viral today. There's like a photo of a picture underneath one of the monoliths and it was like four little wooden pegs like staked into the ground that was like <laughs> holding it up. And they're like, probably not aliens. Because if it were, I mean, yeah. why would they be staking little wooden pegs into the ground to <laughs> yeah, hold up point. their structure, their alien structure? So, yeah, I don't know. It would probably be bigger and heavier, too. I don't know. I mean, what do we know? What do we know, really? <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day. So, I don't know. Let us know what your guys' thoughts are on that, the monolith. But I think it's just a some type of art installation of some sort but the next thing i was just wanted to bring up real briefly we talked about this a week or two ago about the arcebo telescope and how it was like on the verge of collapse well sadly the thing actually did finally completely collapse um and there's a video of it that's pretty pretty wild to watch yeah it is 
Damn. Watch this one. Whoa. Whoa. That's wild. Is that sped up? That's a drone capturing that mm. right now. Wow. Yeah, that's all happened. Whoa. Oh, my God. That's just wild. Was there any sign that it was going to do that? No, I, they still don't fully understand. It, it got damage from a past hurricane. No, but, yeah, obviously. But I wonder if it was like shaking or something beforehand or showing signs that it was about to. Yeah, it was showing signs it was about to collapse, okay. but they didn't know when it was going to collapse. Like this just happened. Wow. That's unreal. So that very, very expensive telescope is completely What a gone. shame. It's a real shame. That's wild. The last bit of news we wanted to share, though, was about some legislation that was passed this past Friday. So the U.S. House of Representatives, in a historic vote, voted to pass the MORE Act, or the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act of 2019. And this bipartisan bill was sponsored by Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So the, the main thing with this is that, you know, we're, we're moving towards federally decriminalizing marijuana uh, across the country. That's essentially mm -hmm. what this bill represents. But it's also more than that. It has to do with, you know, when you talk about expungement of people's records for marijuana charges. I mean, this is a huge step in the right direction to finally put an end to the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly why I wanted to bring this up is because. You know, it's not all about cannabis all the time. You know, some people are like, oh, you guys are just, you know, all about cannabis. But it's also about the war on drugs. Yeah, this is a huge issue. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we can all get high. More people right. can get high. Like, this is going to be life changing for so many people that are serving horrible sentences, really long sentences or life sentences for minor drug charges. It's actually insane. And we've actually had some viewers reach out to us privately telling us their stories about mm -hmm. how, you know, being in Florida, they were pulled over with, they had like a vape cartridge or something, or they yeah. had a, you know, small amount of marijuana and mm -hmm. they ended up going to jail and they now have a felony on their record and their whole life is ruined it's uh, because of this. So especially when over here we're in Colorado and we're able to go to any dispensary within five miles, there's like, you know, probably 10 near yeah. our house and get whatever we want. And you know, obviously you can't use it when you're driving or in the car, like you just said, but yeah, yeah. either yeah. way, like you should be able to access those things in a safe way, especially if one part of the country can doesn't, that just does not make sense in the same country to have such, you know, crazy differences when it comes to drugs, when it comes to yeah. laws regarding marijuana, it's just wild. Yeah. It, and I think the federal government recognizes that because there's so many issues right now with dealing with the federal laws. And I mean, banking, mm -hmm. uh, if you're in the cannabis world, is very difficult because of mm -hmm. because of the fact that cannabis is still a scheduled one drug. It's yep. still, you know, a controlled substance and a felony in, in many places. So it's screwing over so many small businesses and even legal states mm -hmm. because they're trying yeah. to, you know, keep up with regulation, but it makes business and nearly it's all, impossible. Sorry, I was going to say it's all cash too, yeah, which, right. which makes it so impossible because how do you keep track of cash really at the end of the mm -hmm. day? People are literally driving around thousands of dollars to banks and then picking up at dispensaries and driving into bank. It's like, yeah. it's ridiculous. There's no real way to track your your money it's crazy yeah it just makes doing business being a small business and trying to be a entrepreneur in cannabis 
like next to impossible. It makes it really hard. A lot of people go out of business in Colorado because of that, especially in 2020. It's been harder than ever. But more importantly, I think is what's going to happen for criminal justice reform because of this. Yeah. And and also people immigrating to this country. If you have marijuana charges on your record, then you're not allowed in. So this is going to help with those Mm -hmm. that have charges like that. It's going to help people who are have life sentences for, you know, cannabis charges to have their, you know, have their sentences looked at again and maybe, you know, realize like, all right, we need to lax this bit. We need to, you know, decrease this a little bit because Mm -hmm. what's the, what's the point of putting in someone in prison for their their entire life over cannabis? So it's it's, huge for employment too. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people can't get licenses if they have a marijuana conviction or on their record or, they say adoption, housing, employment, yes. voting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really does affect so many things. Mm-hmm. When some people were just trying to use it as a medication or, you know, yeah. I mean, whatever. Or even it's if just, you're not, it's like, yeah, you should be able ridiculous. to just use it because it's literally a, a plant. plant. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And it should be, it should have never been taken away from us. We should have always had access to cannabis. And we've done an episode about how, I mean, just the conspiracy around the hemp industry yeah. and going back to the 1930s, how it all changed and it all of a sudden became they illegal. realized, yeah, I mean, they realized so that many this things was... that hemp should be used for. And it, our world could be so different if hemp was never criminalized in any way. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, the farm bill was passed in 2018. So hemp is now you know, we're able to farm that again and mm-hmm. here in the U.S., which is huge. Huge. Because, I mean, environmentally, hemp is just so much more sustainable. I mean, there's it endless is. things you can make out of hemp. It's actually kind of mind-blowing. It is. It's uh, really cool. Like, all, so many of our materials that are destroying our planet, especially, especially cutting trees down, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you can make so you can make houses, clothing. There's so many things you can make from hemp and hemp fiber that mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't even make sense for why it was, you know, criminalized at, and, you know, prohibited at one point. The other thing about the MORE Act, though, is that it's going to implement a 5% sales tax on all commercial cannabis. And they're going to use that money, or so they say, to invest it into grant programs helping the needs of communities who have suffered serious negative impacts from the war on drugs, especially communities of color that have suffered disproportionate mass incarceration. So they're going to tax people for that. That's kind of, I mean, I think that's a good thing, and I am glad they're doing that. But I also think the government should be responsible for that because it's their fault to begin with. Right. So why are yeah. the taxpayers having to make up that cost? Well, it's going to be. I'll the, do it yeah. gladly because I'm happy to help the community. But you know, well, it's, it's a like sales frustrating. tax. So yeah. just like we have a sales tax on marijuana right now here in Colorado, I know, but it's going to be increased because of this. Well, it's the responsibility is going to be put on the companies, the cannabis companies. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant taxpayers. Okay. So it's okay. I can get behind that, but then I feel like bad for the small businesses, though. Still, it should be on the government to you know, go into those communities and supply funding for their mistakes. I think that honestly, once you decriminalize weed and it becomes more and more legal, that the government's going to have a lot harder time pushing these huge taxes onto cannabis companies. Because right now, the amount of taxes that cannabis companies pays, it's insane how much taxes they pay. And this is going to make them pay more. Yes. But I think that as we we start to continue to legalize much, much more, people are going to be like, "Uh, why do I have to pay zillion percent more taxes than my neighbor who's selling alcohol that's so true that's such a good point i think it's gonna be harder to get away with Mm -hmm. well i think ultimately like you said the federal government should be paying into this 
in, in some way, shape or form. I mean, mm-hmm. we just saw what the budget was released for the Department of Defense here in the U.S. this year is like seven hundred billion dollars of, of our tax, actual taxpayer money that we're paying into, you know, to the federal government. Every paycheck is going all to military like we're just buying up more arms, more mm-hmm. planes, more bombs, like all of our mm-hmm. money is going to that. And yet they're going to pass all of the you know, taxation onto the cannabis companies still. So like as much as this is a, a win, you know, like mm-hmm. we're one step closer to decriminalizing it across the country, that doesn't mean legalized federally either. Mm-hmm. And that's a big debate coming into, you know, a new president and, and all that is, is marijuana going to become federally and recreationally legal nationwide? And we don't know. And Maybe. a lot of people don't, don't think so. Don't think that, you know, the Joe Biden administration are actually going to federally legalize it uh nationally i think they're gonna might decriminalize it but they're not mm-hmm. gonna just make it legal will. across the country sadly yeah maybe if we had someone else well i think they're just like andrew yang <laughs> <laughs> well they just want to slowly i think they're trying to slowly but surely like roll back these things they don't want to just like we're not it's like we're not progressive enough to just push it through and like let's just see what happens you know mm-hmm. Like they're letting the states still go state by state to figure it out. So unfortunately, there's states out there that may never legalize marijuana. That's because, just sad. Just because that's the state that you're in and and that kind of sucks. But to decriminalize it would at least take a ton of the risk out of, you know, if you are somebody who needs it um, and you do get caught by the police with it, then you're not going to face the same penalties and jail time that you would have faced before the more act was passed. That's the lesson learned here, I guess. So, mm-hmm. so it's pretty big news. Plus, the United Nations voted to remove the plant from a list of dangerous drugs, which helps clear the way for more research. Because yes. that's what needs to happen. That's why this mm-hmm. is also so important, too, is the research aspect of it. Mm-hmm. There's not any federal funding going into researching cannabis. Yeah, and that includes CBD. Yeah, CBD, hemp, all of it. Like, there's, like we're spending all of this money and federal resources for, you know, a vaccine and other, you know, researching other diseases and other medications out there but yet which we need that which yeah absolutely need that but none of it is going towards clearly you know this plant that's clearly got magical benefit you know mm-hmm. it has medicinal benefits to it mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's incredibly complex too yeah it's and we very need research complex. to understand it even more right because we might find out that there's all these cures that can be made with you know parts of the cannabis plant that we just don't know yet but how will the pharmaceutical industry make money unless they buy their way in they're they gonna will. yeah they they're will. gonna it's only a matter of time it's only a matter Sadly, of time in this fucked up world seriously but the thing is you can grow your own you can't grow your own opioids very easily at least yeah that's true <laughs> that is true unless they take that away yeah unless they take that away but uh, i don't know once you give it to someone like that Good would be pretty that would be cra- pretty crazy for them to be like just kidding you can't grow anymore yeah, yeah. that would be insane yeah you should have at least have that option mm-hmm. so i don't know i just i thought that was interesting because the war on drugs i mean we've talked about it so many times on here and it's such an important topic to continue to discuss because it's an absolute real thing that has affected so many people and and disproportionately people of color and 100 needs to stop and we need to get people that are you know on any type of drug the help mm-hmm. that they they really need and and mm-hmm. If you watch any prison shows you know that prisons full of drugs and most oftentimes it's not a place to rehabilitate somebody Mm-mm. with an addiction so but with that being said let's go ahead and get into 
this Harrison family murder case. It's absolutely insane. But first, we wanted to remind you guys we did drop some new merch. We did. And a lot of you guys already bought some. So um, if you haven't yet, go ahead and check it out at milehiremerch.com. But we have a ton of new items. This is our mountain retreat collection. It is mountain brand inspired. And we tried to make a variety of items this time so that there's kind of a color and a you know, a vibe for everybody. And we, yeah, we just have a lot of options. So definitely check it out. This time we also have mugs. You guys have been requesting some mugs for the colder months. We also have beanies for people that like beanies. Janelle, can you show your beanie off? Very cute. Very Hell warm. Yeah. It looks very warm. Very cozy. They also come in black. And Janelle's also wearing one of our crew necks. I love this one. Yeah. Pull your hair out <laughs> of the way. Janelle's got a lot of hair, people. Yeah, that looks so good. I'm obsessed with that one. That's probably my favorite one. I also love the one that I'm wearing just because this is one of my favorite colors, just a nice kind of heathered maroon. So we, yeah, we have a lot of options for everybody. And we also have a fanny pack, which is really cool. We have some new stickers. We have enamel pins. And everything's super high quality. Like we, mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time on this drop and mm -hmm. and really made sure we got the the top quality items that we could and i mean everything that i've i've seen and, and worn have just been super warm super mm -hmm. super soft like on the inside of those hoodies and crew necks like this one really is good so stuff. comfortable i really like it we have limited stock especially on some of the items they're getting pretty close to out of stock or may already be out of stock when you see this so if you want something go ahead and jump on the website grab it while you can and we won't be doing a restock. We may add some of the items to our permanent collection eventually. I don't know. We really like some of them, so we might keep them. You'll have to let us know if there's anything you think we should add. But for the most part, these are limited stock. So yeah, if you want something, you got to get it now. And again, that is milehiremerch.com. Well, let's go ahead and get into the Harrison family case. But before we do, we got to thank our first sponsors for today. All right, let's go ahead and get right into this case. So this case takes place in Canada, like we said, and we are going to be talking about Bridget Harrison, Caleb Harrison, and Bill Harrison. So Bridget, she used to be Bridget Blackwell, and she was born in London, Ontario in 1946. And she had a very adventurous spirit and was described as being very dedicated to pursuing her dreams of becoming an actress. By the time she was 16 years old, she had already worked on a Canadian game show called Act Fast and was cast in several plays performed in the prominent Stratford Festival, one of Canada's first art festivals. In the early 1960s, she was backstage at a festival where she met Bill Harrison, and the two of them really hit it off right away. Bill was from Stratford and was working for the play's costume department. He was handsome and charismatic, and him and Bridget hit it off right away. They ended up getting married in 1969 and moved to Mississauga, Mississauga, Ontario. Wow. Interesting how, you know, we have a Mississippi and Canada has a Mississauga. <laughs> I, I don't know why. <laughs> Is there a connection? Are they related? <laughs> but they moved to Mississauga, Ontario to start their life together. And Bill worked there as an executive for a large grocery store chain called Sobeys. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Or Sobeys. And Bridget took a job as a teacher and was soon promoted to principal. Also, they were very involved in their community. Bridget served on the school board and Bill volunteered with Big Brothers and coached Little League baseball teams. So he loved kids and he was just known as a really, really nice guy. Bill and Bridget eventually moved to a big house at 
3635 Pitch Pine Crescent, and it had six bedrooms, tall windows, cathedral ceilings, and was the perfect place for them to raise their family. But they couldn't have kids naturally, so in 1973, they adopted a baby boy named Caleb, and he was the perfect addition to their family. And he joined their family when he was six months old, so, you know, he didn't know any different and just kind of fit in really well into their lives. Caleb was a very spirited kid with a lot of energy, and Bill was the peacekeeper in the family, while Bridget was more of the disciplinarian. Bridget and Caleb didn't always see eye to eye, but they loved each other, and he and his dad, on the other hand, always were more like best friends than father and son. And the three of them were a perfect match. They loved their little family. Bill and Bridget were also loved and admired by their entire extended family. They always hosted holidays and parties and welcomed their friends and neighbors to come and be part of the family. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a lot of like your family, like growing yeah, up, and just kind of like did. the place to be. You know, the rest of the extended family all gathers at, at their house mm-hmm. and like you're kind of, you know, the happening place. Yeah, we definitely were. And we always had people that weren't actually related to us that we called aunts and uncles that were just our friends. (laughs) So everyone was treated like our family. So yeah, Caleb grew up in a great environment, a very warm and loving home where he was loved and accepted by everyone around him. It's crazy that he was adopted because he looks so much like them. Right. Doesn't he? Especially grown up. Yeah. He looks like exactly like Bill. It's weird. It it really is. It almost looks like he could be their child, like biological child. It really does. Yeah. Like look at the, like the nose is very similar on Caleb. Very similar to the eyes, the lips even. He looks so similar to Bill. As an adult, his co-workers described him as a very hard worker. He was polite and friendly and had a good sense of humor. He got along with almost everyone that he met. When Caleb was 27 years old, he met Melissa Merritt while working at My Favorite Doll, which is a Barbie retailer in Ontario. Melissa had graduated from high school and several of her family members were in law enforcement, but she decided to take a job in retail instead. She was young and naive and fell for Caleb almost immediately. Yeah, and Caleb actually started driving Melissa to work and, you know, they started getting closer and closer. The more they worked, they ate lunch together every day and they had dinner together every night. And it seemed like a fairy tale romance. But soon after they started dating, there was a death in Caleb's family. And Melissa wanted to go with him to the funeral, but she was supposed to work. So she decided not to request time off and just hope her manager understood. So Caleb and Melissa went to this funeral together and she met his family. And when she went to work for her next shift, she got fired from her job. Caleb got angry because she got fired and ended up quitting his job as well in protest. And a few years later, they ended up getting married and they had two kids of their own, a girl and a boy. And Caleb absolutely loved being a dad and he would do anything for his kids. He just seemed like a really, really good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he even had their names tattooed on his shoulder. So it took great pride in being a father and you know was really involved in his kids' lives. And Bill and Bridget absolutely adored their grandchildren. They showered them with the same love and devotion that they had always shown Caleb. But Melissa and Caleb started fighting more and more as time went on. And by 2005, things were starting to escalate. During an argument, Caleb allegedly started beating Melissa. And he was actually arrested and charged with domestic assault and spent three days in jail. Melissa didn't want to reconcile after this, and she claimed it wasn't the first time that Caleb had beaten her. She said that there had been multiple premeditated assaults before, and she said Caleb didn't hit her in anger during an argument, but instead was like sneaky about it and would like sneak attack her when she wouldn't expect it or even when she went to sleep, she claimed. 
So yeah, and these are her claims. Claims, of course. yes. There's mm-hmm. the, there's not a lot to back up those claims, other than he did get arrested for domestic assault at one time. But so, we don't know about yeah. all the other stuff. So maybe he did have that. You know, clearly had an incident where there was enough evidence to charge him with domestic assault. But all these other things, the sneak attack thing, we that's just coming from Melissa. We don't we don't know for sure if that's true. And it might be true. It could be true. We just wanted to clarify that we don't know because the rest of Caleb's family claims that that's not true for the Mm -hmm. most part and that that's just not his nature to do things like that yeah and they also claim that it was just a toxic relationship in general and they were just horrible to each other yeah exactly and melissa probably had more you know to play in that than she likes to lead on Mm -hmm. but after this all happened melissa left caleb but she didn't file for divorce and caleb moved back to his childhood home on pitch pine crescent in mississauga and he started working construction jobs in order to make money He was extremely stressed about the breakup and worried not being able to see his kids every day. And as a result of not being able to see his kids, you know, it made him very upset, Mm -hmm. depressed, depressed. Exactly. So he started drinking more and more in order to cope. And in July of 2005, shortly after returning home, Caleb borrowed his mom's Mercedes to go to a party. He picked up three friends and agreed to be the designated driver. But at the party, Caleb got very drunk. He tried to drive his friends home anyway. But his friends want to get in the car with him because they're like, dude, you're drunk. And they decide to walk home instead. But Caleb refused to give up his keys and started to drive home anyway. While he was going over 60 miles per hour down Derry Road, just a few blocks away from the party, he swerved into the next lane. And that's when he got into a head-on collision with a taxi driving in the opposite direction. And the taxi driver was Michael Raymond. And he had four young men as passengers at the time of the accident. Michael, unfortunately, was killed, and two of the passengers were severely injured. Uh, One of the passengers, Tim Corbett, was actually thrown from the back seat into the front passenger seat, and he sliced his forehead uh, all the way to his ears. So a big, big injury there. Yeah, ouch. Another passenger, Tom Flinsky, broke an arm and a leg and fractured his spine. And after this crash, both cars were on fire. So this was a really, really bad accident. And the two passengers, not severely injured, fled the taxi and ducked into a ditch on the side of the road. And they assumed the driver and the other two friends were dead. And neighbors in the surrounding houses came out to see what had happened because obviously you hear a crash like that. And a lot of, and some of them even saw the crash and were able to go out and pull out Tim and Tom from the burning car. And Caleb's friends at the party actually saw the whole thing. And they ran down the street and pulled Caleb from his car. And Caleb had some scratches and bruises and a broken leg, but he hadn't been injured nearly as bad as some of the other people in the taxi. As a result of this accident, though, he was arrested and charged with a DUI resulting in death and serious injury. Caleb was able to make bail, but was put on house arrest in his parents' home, where they had now lived for over 30 years on Pitch Pine Crescent. Melissa was very upset with Caleb and believed he shouldn't be around their kids anymore. But a judge ruled that they were to share custody while Caleb awaited trial for the drunk driving case. Also during this time, to make matters more complicated, Caleb and Melissa both started dating other people. Caleb met a woman named Corinda, who also had two kids, and Bill and Bridget actually really liked her a lot. And Corinda and Bridget became fast friends pretty quickly. During this time, Melissa met a new guy online, and it was a man named Chris Fattore. He was actually a security guard. Now, Chris loved Melissa's kids and treated them like he was their father. And he also hated that Caleb had caused them all so much pain, which made him angry at Caleb. 
And he was a big, intimidating guy with a tattoo down his arm that said, only the strong survive. Very tough guy. And he was determined to protect Melissa and her kids at all costs. Chris started a Facebook page to lobby for the longest sentence allowed under the law for Caleb. He shared the page with everyone he knew, hoping to get 100,000 signatures on this petition. And on the page, he posted an altered picture of Caleb with devil horns. And he wrote, this is Caleb Harrison, the dick that killed someone drinking and driving. This man has gotten away with too much already in his life. It can't keep happening. That's pretty extreme to go to the, those lengths. I mean, I get being upset with somebody for, you know, a drunk driving accident. But Absolutely. To, but <laughs> to, to go online and, and try to get signatures on a petition to give somebody the maximum sentence for I mean, their crime. Yeah. In some cases, it's a little probably odd. deserved, but it's odd in this situation. I completely agree. Um, but Melissa wasn't legally divorced and she and Chris had a wedding ceremony anyway. And a few months later, their first child was born a baby girl. Meanwhile, Bill and Bridget were active caregivers for Caleb and Melissa's two kids. But Melissa ended up filing multiple complaints to the police and to the Children's Aid Society about how her kids were being treated in the house on Pitch Pine Crescent. She claimed that Caleb was abusive and that his parents were poisoning her children against her. She complained about how often Caleb dumped the kids off at his parents' house and that she had to work around all three of their schedules, even though Bill and Bridget weren't legal guardians of the kids yeah but they're their grandparents mm -hmm. like calm down i know so dramatic to be like oh i'm so inconvenienced by this yeah i mean but we don't really know what was going on with it's caleb true. and what she's seen like she may have had a lot of actual concern for him being around them and i do get it's frustrating when your parent like you're giving up time with your kids and the other parent is just leaving them at the parents house like i understand why she was frustrated not saying it's right at all um, and of course he probably had to work and had other things, but who knows what he was spending his time away from his parents' house even doing. We don't know a lot in yeah, this situation. That's very true. We can't assume that nothing was happening, mm -hmm. but she didn't have a valid reason for filing these complaints. Mm -hmm. A judge asked that Caleb and Melissa only communicate through letters to help keep the peace, but the situation ended up getting even worse when Melissa accused Bridget of forging letters from Caleb. Then Melissa alleged that her son had been slapped and she refused to let her kids go back to the house. So the judge had to intervene and ordered Melissa to follow the custody agreement, warning her that the police would take action if she broke the agreement again. The preliminary hearing for Caleb's trial was postponed several times. It took three years for the trial to actually begin. Caleb's defense lawyer argued that his right to a speedy trial had not been met because of all the delays, but the judge just dismissed this. The case moved forward and Melissa and Chris attended the whole trial. Of course they did. I know. They were like... They really wanted to see mm -hmm. Caleb go down. Yeah, they were very angry. And I'm curious what else had transpired over the years to make Melissa so angry and Chris so angry too. I mean, he barely even yeah. really knew him that well. So it's just odd. But they sat in the back whispering during all the proceedings and allegedly taunted Bill and Bridget. And once reporters saw Melissa and Chris sticking their tongues out in front of Bill and Bridget as they drove by. God, what the hell? Yeah, that's it's very weird. Super I immature. mean, I'm sure as you're kind of noticing that these these two are mm -hmm. kind of odd, like uh, I get like they're not obeying the custody agreements like those are in place for a reason. And they're just like ma they're making all these claims of abuse and that Bill and Bridget are, you know, not mm -hmm. 
fit to take care of them. They're not their legal guardians. It's it's all kind of weird. Chris and Melissa also took every opportunity they could to talk to the media. And Bridget said that she was really disturbed by their actions. And Caleb told his parents not to pay any attention to them, that they were just being immature. But in the spring of 2009, Caleb was found guilty of all three counts of impaired driving, causing bodily harm, and one count of impaired driving, causing death. And he was sentenced to only 18 months in prison, which is kind of crazy. I feel bad for the family of whoever he killed. Yeah, it's not very long. It's not very long. Bill and Bridget immediately took steps to transfer custody of their grandchildren to them while Caleb was away. And of course, Melissa did not like this. And they were actually granted custody rights about two weeks after Caleb was sentenced. A month later, on April 16th, Bridget was out late at a school board meeting, and she got home a little bit after 9 o'clock. And she knew right away that something was wrong. The table was set for dinner, and Bill's drink was sitting on the table, but she couldn't find him. She called his name and got no answer. Bridget tried to open the door of the downstairs bathroom, but the lights were off, and the door was locked. When she managed to get the door open, like she had to jimmy it open, which mm-hmm. was very, very weird and, and bizarre. Like something was, yeah. Clearly something was wrong. Mm-hmm. When she managed to jimmy the door open, finally, she saw Bill lying unresponsive on the floor. At that point, she called 911 and told the dispatcher he wasn't breathing. Uh, my husband, I just came home from work and I found him collapsed on the back table. What city was in? I beg your pardon? What city? Mississauga. Mm-hmm. What's the address? 3635 Pitch Pine Crescent. I think that call is pretty interesting because so often we judge 911 calls. I mean, we're even guilty of doing that. And someone's, the way that they're acting, and sometimes we say, oh, they're, they're so calm. They seem like too calm. She's very calm. Maybe that's just, I mean, that is the way that some people act in shock, uh, which we'll go into more. And I think that's just her demeanor overall. Like, I think she's just a very, like, kind of calm, collect person. Like, she doesn't, Mm -hmm. I don't think she shows a ton of emotion Mm -mm. uh, just based off clips that I've seen of her. But yeah, that's why it's important to not judge people in those conversations too much. Like I said, I always do that. It's hard not to, but it's important when you see calls like this, you know. Right, because, I mean, you know, she she finds Bill, so maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you're thinking, okay, he's lying unresponsive on the floor. Mm-hmm. What what happened to him? I mean, it was just a normal day. Where did things go wrong? I well, just think most people would be so scared and would think that they are going to be, you know, yelling. I would personally be yelling if I came in and you were on the floor. I'd be, like, freaking out. Yeah, yeah, seriously. You'd be going into hysteria at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, what was weird was when she found Bill, his wedding ring and his crucifix were both off of his body. His crucifix? Mm-hmm. So it's basically just a cross. I mean, it's oh, okay. Catholics usually wear a crucifix. I didn't know yeah. that was what it was called. Yeah, yeah. Or a rosary or, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. So uh, also blood pressure medicine and pain medicine were out in the bathroom as well. And his Swiss army knife was also nearby. When the police took a look at everything, they found no signs of a break-in or a struggle And basically, they came to the conclusion that Bill's heart had just stopped. And at the time of Bill's death, forensic pathology in Canada was still decades behind the rest of the world, unfortunately. And his non-forensic autopsy was performed by a community-based pathologist who had no specialized training in the field. But during the autopsy, they did find that he had bruises on his neck, face, and head, as well as a fractured sternum. But yet his official cause of death was listed as cardiac arrhythmia. 
How is that even possible for them to do that? I don't know. That's so unfair. Bruising on your neck. What does that have to do with your heart? Right? I mean, to have bruising all over and a fractured sternum. Yeah. Okay. That's just bizarre. I mean, I guess you could say he like after his heart stopped, he fell over and somehow injured himself on the fall. But it's like. No, not on his sternum. Yeah. I mean, unless he was he face down. I forget. It's it's possible. It's possible that he injured himself but the neck that's what gets me is like yeah this just does not make sense at the time of bill's death he was only 64 years old he was also an extremely fit and active guy he ate well and didn't have a history of any heart problems either so the family right away was extremely shocked by his sudden death and they were very hesitant to believe that there had been no foul play obviously like Mm. bill just dropped dead at 64 from his heart stopping like you and, and again you do hear that happen to mm-hmm. sometimes the most fit and active people in the world they just drop dead because of something but yeah it's possible of mm-hmm. course but it's unlikely and unusual yeah but they were very confused about why bill was locked in the bathroom in the dark mm-hmm. while he was home alone because think about it like when you're home alone are you locking yourself in the bathroom when you use it only when i cry <laughs> in the dark <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I know I don't. I usually leave the damn door <laughs> yeah, open. Yeah, me too. Like yeah. the door is wide open. Like, I'm like oh, nobody's going to walk in. Mm-hmm. You know, who cares? So it's very, it was very odd to the family that the door was basically mm-hmm. locked and he was inside when there was no one else in the house. Right. What's the point of locking the door if you're home alone? Yeah. Very, very weird. But the day after Bill's death, Bridget went to pick up their grandchildren from school to tell them the news. But when she got there, the school told her that they had left earlier with their mother. So Bridget went to Chris and Melissa's home to, you know, get the kids, but no one was there. And the house was also locked up, dark and empty. And after a few days, she reported the missing kids to the police and explained that it it was very weird that her the grandchildren disappear basically the same day mm. that Bill dies. I mean, that's very weird to me as well. It is. Bridget then went to court the very next day and was granted full custody of her still missing grandchildren. That's surprising. They just automatically granted her full custody maybe because she broke the agreement so many times. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean and, and she basically abducted them. Yeah. I mean parental abduction is a real thing. Like yes. you can't just if there's a custody agreement between you Kids. and somebody else, you can't mm-hmm. just take them and keep them from the other party. Like that's that's a major violation. And then a few weeks later, the police took a statement of Bridget Melissa and Chris had even dyed the kid's hair before taking off. Bridget consulted with private investigators and got help from an organization called Child Fine in order to help locate the kids. And law enforcement officers across Canada were on the lookout for both Melissa and Chris. Meanwhile, Bridget buried her husband of 40 years five days after she found him dead. And Caleb was allowed to leave prison to view his father's body, but he couldn't see or talk to anyone, not even his grieving mother. Bill was then cremated and the police closed the case. Basically, he died of natural causes. Caleb was then paroled on June 15th after serving only three months when he went home to his mother's house. Melissa and Chris had taken the three kids to a small village in Nova Scotia. And while there, they had their second child together, a baby boy. And they had even taken on new identities and lived mostly off the grid. But Chris made a major mistake when he signed a rent check in his legal name. And not long after that, they were taken into police custody. Melissa was arrested in November 2009 and charged with parental abduction, and she got out on bail but was placed on house arrest. She was prohibited from having any contact with Caleb or their two kids. 
And when police searched her computer, they found a very alarming search history. Searches such as, if a grandparent has legal custody and they die, which of the parents gets the kids? Another one was, easy ways to kill and get away with it. Bridget Harrison, Bridget Harrison, Mississauga. How long does it take to die from choking? Very suspicious. On April 10th, 2010, Melissa was arrested again for violating the conditions of her bail. Caleb and Bridget had seen her outside her house, and she was released a few days later. On April 16th, Caleb's family gathered at the house on Pitch Pine Crescent to mark the first anniversary of Bill's death. Family members noticed how distraught and frail Bridget seemed. She was absolutely just torn up by her husband's death. And less than a week later, on April 22nd, Bridget was scheduled to testify in Melissa's trial for parental abduction. Bridget had written a heartbreaking statement about how difficult it was to lose her husband and her grandchildren on the same day, all without the comfort of her son. And in the statement, it was clear that Bridget believed the two events were linked. She wrote, some people believe in coincidences, some do not. Caleb still didn't have a license and him and his girlfriend had broken up. So he relied on his mother to do all the driving for him and his kids. Without Bill around to keep the peace, tensions between Caleb and Bridget were sometimes high and they got into a few heated arguments. What happens next is absolutely insane. But before we continue, I want to thank our last sponsors for today. So the day before Bridget was scheduled to testify at Melissa's trial, she took her grandkids to school and Caleb to work as she did every morning. Caleb's eight-year-old son got home that afternoon expecting to be greeted by his grandmother. However, he ended up finding her lying at the bottom of the stairs. So this poor kid ran to the neighbor's house and asked them to call for help. And the paramedics, when they did get there, they knew right away that Bridget was already dead. She was lying face up on her back with her head resting on the bottom step. And there were bruises on her chin, her neck, and near her ear. Her glasses and purse were lying nearby. And just and this is just a year after Bill's death. How crazy Almost, is that? Yeah, very close to the date, right around the same time. And this time they had a different forensic pathologist perform the autopsy, but this pathologist was still completing their training. The autopsy revealed that she had multiple broken ribs and a broken neck. And they also said that she may have been strangled to death or she could have just fallen down the stairs. But the bruising around her neck was not consistent with a fall. And it's really interesting to talk about someone falling down a stairs in their home. I mean, how often does someone fall down the stairs and die yeah. as a result in their house? I mean, these are carpeted steps. And let they alone, don't look that long or that steep. No, not at all. And she's found on her back. Mm -hmm. So if you're going down the stairs forward and you fall, you would expect to fall face forward. first, right? Yes. But instead she's lying on her back with like one of her, like her head up on the step and everything. Resting. Like, on yeah. The bottom step. Yeah. Um, that makes me think of the Kathleen Peterson and Michael Michael Peterson case, otherwise known as the staircase. Yeah. Which we have done an episode on that as well. But even that's um, more believable as like falling down this because that one was like maybe a lot. That staircase but she ended was up steeper. in a similar position at the bottom. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. face up. Still suspicious for sure. Yeah, of course. But I mean, I I've know. I've fallen going up the stairs like every day and I'm still here. So, you literally fall down the stairs almost or, every day. Or if I, I have actually fallen going down or slipped rather going down carpeted stairs. And when that happened, you fall on your back and you do slide down to the bottom step kind of in that position that, that she was found in. But mm -hmm. 
that's not enough to kill you. Like if anything, right. you might hurt your back or yeah. break a bone. So it is possible she obviously slid down and landed like yeah. that. So it's not like completely out of the question that right. she could have fallen down the stairs, but the bruising on her neck, how would she have gotten that? Well, the paramedic was saying like, it is possible that you could hit your neck on the step. But again, That's the bruising true. was around the front of the yeah, neck. So and if you're lying on your back, how does that happen? Right. doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem consistent at all. Plus it's just so uncommon to die on a small set of stairs like that, especially ones that are carpeted. And again, this is a year after Bill dies, so, mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden. So strange timing. The family's definitely a bit suspicious. So one of Bill's sisters was a nurse and she had been allowed into the house to view Bridget's body. That must have been intense. She knew Bridget's position was not consistent with the fall down the stairs right away. So in the end, they weren't able to determine if Bridget's death was an accident or a homicide. So it was just ruled as suspicious. She was only 63 years old. And other than being diabetic, she had no major health problems. Their family was once again confused and devastated by this cause of death. It's just confusing. And just as in Bill's case, they didn't believe that Bridget had actually died from natural causes or falling down the stairs. They ended up telling the police that they believe someone was targeting their family. Yeah, that's what I would think, too. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense for, you know, this to happen yeah. in this way. Twice in their house, mm -hmm. a year apart. Very odd. Um, so Melissa and Chris ended up being brought in for questioning after Bridget's death. And during questioning, Melissa told police that while it was strange that Bridget had died so close to the anniversary of Bill's death, that she could have died from stress of losing her husband. Mm. I mean, I guess that does happen. Sometimes people die of broken hearts, they say. But. Okay, I think my aunt literally died. My great aunt, I should say, died of a broken heart. She died right after her husband's funeral, my great uncle's funeral. Um, literally came home and went in her room, laid down, and died. And my whole family thinks it's because she was so stressed or so sad that she lost him. But that was, you know, weeks later versus this is a whole year later. Yeah. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it happens to be like the one year anniversary of his death too, mm -hmm. like right around that time. And that's basically Melissa's argument is, you know, having the anniversary come up is bringing up all these old feelings. It's causing old trauma and really stressing her out, causing her to slip down the stairs. I guess. And die. Yeah. I don't know what she was trying to argue. Honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but she also said that Caleb had a strained, re strained relationship with his mother. Melissa talked about the physical abuse that she suffered while married to Caleb and speculated that he could have attacked his mother in the same way that he used to attack her. So here's a clip from Melissa's questioning. I think it's weird that she passed away like a week after Bill. Like it was almost like a week between the anniversary of, yeah. I don't know what you call it, but say the anniversary of Bill passing away. Yeah. He had passed away for one year, and then I think it was almost like a week later mm. that she had passed away. I think that's odd. But, you know, I you kind of then when you start thinking about it, it's like, well, it was a year anniversary since her husband passed away. Maybe, you know, like I said, I've heard the stress killed. I, I've heard, you know, like mm -hmm. it can kill you. It can just eat away at your body or whatever. I've been told that because I've been stressed out you know, since my kids were taken from me and my doctor's like, you need to take it easy. Like, because mm -hmm. it'll kill you. Like, I have ulcers now that I'm on medication oh, for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so because I'm just always worrying and I don't see them and I'm stressed out about everything that's going on. And, you know, he's like, you really, you'll get sick, like, mm -hmm. from the stress. It'll just eat away at your body and you'll just shut down. Mm -hmm. Me being different, I'm, you know, a 30-year-old woman compared to a 63-year-old <laughs> yeah. woman. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. So 
you know, like when I think thought about it, I was like, that's really weird. Mm-hmm. Like that, that close of a time span, you know, yeah. but then sometimes like then I'm thinking, well, maybe the one year anniversary, get upset again. You feel like you go through that remorse again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, as to like, you know, when I don't know anything that would have happened to her, I don't, I've got, yeah. you know, my worries about things, but. And what would those worries be? Well, not so much worries, just um, when I was with Caleb, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be like, you know, I've already been told by Detective Amoroso that fingers are being pointed and I'm not in any way pointing fingers because yeah. that's not why I'm here. But when I was with Caleb, he didn't have a good relationship with his mom. Okay. And I'm not saying that's enough to do something to her, but he didn't have a great relationship with his mom. They had, you know, they would argue a lot. I know that they had a rough, you know, growing up stage where they wouldn't get along i don't know like and again i don't know how she died i don't know what she looked like i don't know if she was assaulted i don't know if she looked per- i don't know anything about that so i don't want to be making any assumptions that he beat the hell out of her and she died because i don't know like i don't know what she looked like you know like if you know her face was all bashed in then maybe it would be a little bit more stronger of a thought so Caleb made some sense as a suspect since he was the sole heir of his parents' estate, so that would give him a motive, um, and he would be receiving payouts from their life insurance policies, but no one in the family believed that he would ever harm his mother. Caleb really loved his parents. Like, he definitely had some run-ins with Bill, like some fights, arguments, or whatever, but nothing crazy, but he was really close with his mother. It just didn't make any sense. Um, His childhood friend, Stephanie, also spent a lot of time with him and Melissa when they were a couple, and she didn't see any signs of abuse or violent behavior from Caleb other than what Melissa was telling him, which, of course, like we said, could be true. We're not completely saying that that's not possible, but there is no other evidence. This is all coming from her. Right. We have to take her word for it at the end of the day. Um, Bridget's niece thought that Bridget may have died from a broken heart, like Melissa said, and like we were talking about earlier, that she was devastated after Bill's death and she wasn't eating much and, you know, just become frail and possibly fell down the stairs. Most of her family members were convinced, though, that her death was not an accident and they kept pushing police to investigate further. The chief forensic pathologist was also having doubts about the case as well, but Bill's body could not provide any more evidence for them because he was already cremated. Yeah, I think they were planning to exhume his body uh, if it was still yeah. still there to be exhumed and, and take another look at it because I think they're starting to maybe connect some dots that, mm-hmm. okay, maybe the two deaths are connected, maybe it's not just Well, yeah, the fact they causes. even requested that from the family, yeah. Even without Bridget's testimony, Melissa was convicted of parental abduction and given probation, no jail time, and she and Chris ended up moving in with her parents. Caleb was inconsolable after Bridget's death. He was so, so depressed over it. His friend Stephanie talked to him on the phone right after his mother died, and she said that he was completely brokenhearted. The police questioned Caleb about his last interactions with Bridget as well, asking where he had been around the time of her death, and they asked him about the bruises that were found on Bridget's body. And he stayed calm throughout the entire questioning. He understood that this is just part of the process, and he answered all of their questions with patience. He also said that he had been at work all day and hadn't even talked to his mom since that morning and didn't notice any unusual bruises when he had seen her back then. 
He also confirmed that the door to the house was usually left unlocked during the day, and even if no one was home, because it was a safe neighborhood. The police found no signs of any break-in or robbery. And their family, rightly so, was concerned that the police were focusing on Caleb as a suspect and missing important possible clues about what they really think happened to Bridget. They also feared that Caleb and his kids could be the next victims if someone was targeting their family. What's absolutely crazy about this case, though, is that the police just closed Bridget's case. Like, they didn't... They didn't even tell the family and even multiple family members remember never being contacted by the police to let them know that, hey, you know, we're going to go ahead and close Bridget's case because there's just no evidence of any foul play. And yeah, super frustrating. And yet they claim they did tell the family that they were going to close the case. And so there's some dispute there. But all the family members are like, we would remember Mm, if they were going to close Bridget's case. And I mean, they were very, very vocal with the police about, you know, some, this was not an accident. Somebody clearly did something to Bridget. And so this was very upsetting for the family when they did in fact find out that the case had been closed. As you can imagine, Caleb was super upset about both of his parents now being gone. And so he started drinking again and became deeply depressed, but he tried to keep himself together for his kids. He was granted full custody and Melissa was allowed supervised visits. But after Melissa and Chris moved to a farm in Perth County, Caleb let the kids stay with him every other week. Chris at that point worked at a poultry plant and Melissa took care of the farm where they raised goats and pigs. She made cheese and lotions from their milk and sold crafts on Etsy for extra income. Even though they wanted to live off the grid, Melissa started a blog where they documented their lives with their now three children and her two kids with Caleb. And they seemed to have a happy life, taking the kids on trips and posting about their adventures online including a Harlem Shake video featuring all five kids. So she was like posting shit on social media Mm -hmm. uh, and they were living off the grid, which I find very interesting. But late at night after the kids were in bed, Chris and Melissa would quietly confide their worries to each other, both suspecting that they were being watched or monitored. They were clearly paranoid and one of them even Googled how to tell if your phone is tapped. On March 1st, 2012, Melissa and Chris were woken up by smoke. A fire had started in their living room and the family managed to escape out a window, but the entire house was destroyed and their pets were all killed. That's so sad though. Seriously. Melissa was pregnant with their sixth child at the time and with nowhere to go, they moved into a hotel. They ended up trying to raise money through GoFundMe, but only got about $5,000. They then moved from the hotel back to Mississauga where Caleb lived. And shortly after Caleb told Melissa, he didn't want the kids staying with her and Chris alone anymore. Caleb was back with Corinda at that point and had a steady job, and was just trying to be a better dad for his kids, who are now 10 and 12 years old. Caleb and Melissa had been at odds for at least a year, and Melissa had been trying to regain custody of their kids and had filed a motion that July to change the agreement to shared custody. Chris met Caleb in a park and served him the court papers. Caleb never got the chance to file a response, though. Even though the adults were battling over custody, Caleb agreed to let the kids stay with their mom for one more week at the end of the summer. The last day Melissa would be alone with the two kids was August 22, 2013. And that day, Caleb took the kids to their baseball game. He was their volunteer coach, just like his dad had been before him. After the game, they went with Melissa, along with their mom for the last time. And Melissa and Chris took the kids to get dinner at a nearby plaza, and they stopped at Walmart and bought a pair of men's running shoes. Caleb, meanwhile, went home and just enjoyed a normal night. And around 11 p.m., Corinda actually called Caleb, and it sounded like he had been drinking, and they actually got into an argument. But after the call, Caleb turned off his cell phone, which he usually did at night, and then went to bed. So the following morning, uh, his housekeeper comes to start cleaning the house like normal, 
and his coworkers are starting to get concerned that Caleb hasn't shown up for work yet. After about 20 minutes had passed, his coworkers were starting to get more concerned because Caleb was one of those workers that even if he was going to be a few minutes late, he always called in to let them know like, hey, run a little bit late. I'll be there, you know, very soon. But no one had heard from him that morning. So one of his coworkers decided to go to his house and actually see what was up. Maybe he was just playing hooky and, you know, just staying home with his girlfriend all day or something like that. Because at this point, Caleb wasn't answering his phone and he wasn't texting back or anything like that. It just seemed like he had dropped off of the map. So the coworker went over to Caleb's house and it was around lunchtime to check on him. And the housekeeper that was there cleaning the home let him in and pointed to where Caleb's room was because apparently the housekeeper wasn't allowed to actually clean Caleb's room and his door was closed. So this coworker is just walking through the house, calling out Caleb's name hoping that he'll respond when he gets to the closed door. And he said that, you know, he just hoped that Caleb wasn't going to be in there, but obviously you're going to start to think something's Mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. When he opened the door, that's when he saw Caleb laying on the bed and he still had a face mask on. When he walked over to Caleb though and touched him, he knew immediately that Caleb was gone because he was just cold and stiff. And that's when he called 911 for help. One of the first paramedics who got to the scene was Patrick Morin. And Patrick was also there the day that Caleb's mother's body was discovered at the bottom of the stairs mm-hmm. in the house. So this was a really, really weird moment for him because he's like, yeah. here I am again. It's like, I know I've been here before. Yeah. Yeah. It was just very bizarre. Definitely weirded him out for sure. And the paramedic also said that based on our initial examination of Caleb, it was very clear that this was not a death by natural causes, that this was in fact homicide by asphyxiation because He had all kinds of injuries Mm -hmm. all over his neck. He also had scratches. I mean, it was very obvious that this was foul play. Mm -hmm. It seems like the person who did this was getting more and more aggressive with each murder. Mm -hmm. So this is the third death within four years. And Caleb was only 40 years old when he passed away. And at this point, family members were absolutely convinced that this family was being targeted by somebody. And once again, they went to the police to express their concerns. So after this, the police obviously just had to reopen Bridget and Bill's case. It just was so obvious that the family was in the right to suspect foul play at this point. Here's a clip of Bridget's brother, Doug Blackwell, talking with police. You don't have anybody who's more anxious to know what's going on than our immediate family. Think back of the history. Think back to my sister. Think back to my brother-in-law and understand that Nobody, nobody is thinking, you know, well, it was just a bad accident. A friend of mine said, you know what, you just watched an entire family uh, wiped out in their own home. The police then reopened Bridget and Bill's case. I mean, it was obvious at this point that the family had, you know, been in the right to suspect foul play all along. And homicide detectives took over and launched a full investigation of Bridget's death and Caleb's murder. And they realized that Bridget's death may have been murder too. They also looked into everyone that knew Caleb or had seen him in the days and weeks leading up to his death, and the Harrison family felt confident in the investigation for the first time. So of course, detectives questioned Melissa and Chris. They both said that they had seen him the night before his body was discovered to pick up the kids. They said they took the kids to dinner at a nearby plaza and then went home. They got the kids to bed at around 9.30 and went to bed themselves around 11. Melissa said that she was sure that she slept through the night. She was positive that Chris hadn't left the house. 
Chris also said that he hadn't left the house all night and neither of them had mentioned a trip to Walmart. But Melissa and Chris were definitely primed suspects from pretty much the beginning of this investigation. And even more so, what really made them know that it was at least Chris is that his DNA had been found under Caleb's fingernails. So the police followed Chris until he left a coffee cup behind while running errands. After that, they DNA tested the cup and it matched what was under Caleb's fingernails. So they knew that it was probably them, but they had to get the confession out of the way. Chris was not arrested right away. The police wanted to get more evidence against Melissa too, so that they could really come strong at both of them. And an officer even went undercover as a garbage collector and picked up trash bags from Chris and Melissa's house. And inside the bags, they found a brand new pair of running shoes from Walmart, the latex gloves, and they found Chris's DNA inside of the gloves and Caleb's DNA was on the outside. So that's pretty yeah. obvious at that point. So I was just going to say that like during, you know, when they're talking to Chris and Melissa and interrogating them and like, okay, give us the timeline of what happened. They yeah. both claimed to go to this plaza to mm-hmm. get pita pit uh, for dinner yeah. after the baseball game and after they'd picked up Caleb's kids. And then, you know, they never mentioned going to Walmart, which was kind of in the same plaza. So, you know, now that they find these shoes and these gloves are like, okay, well, these are brand new running shoes. Well, where were they bought from? Oh, they're bought from Walmart. So then they actually go and look at the surveillance footage of the Walmart from around the time period that they said that they're at this plaza. And sure enough, they see footage Mm -hmm. clearly and a a credit card transaction of Chris going into the Walmart, buying these running shoes that were now in the trash mm-hmm. that they had found in the same place with the the gloves. So yep. pretty fucking stupid. Um, and now that Caleb is dead, Melissa automatically wants to get custody of the kids. It's her first priority. And she was actually able to expedite this process because she said she needed documentation to enroll them into school. And in an affidavit, she explained that she wanted all her kids to go to school together at the same time. So she was granted full custody of her kids in early September. And within a month, she and Chris pulled all the kids from school and moved back to Nova Scotia. And before leaving, Melissa tried to request a copy of Caleb's will. His family's estate was worth more than $1 million. So she was interested. Melissa and Chris started a life over once again and hoped that they would never be linked back to Caleb's murder. Well, too too bad. Yeah. (laughs) The police had different plans. They decided... They were gathering evidence against Melissa and they made plans to bug their house. They invented a fake woman named Sue Andrews who started emailing Melissa and offering to help her out financially. And Melissa was hesitant at first, but after a few emails, she started to trust Sue. And Sue Andrews started to send her gift cards to help pay for the family's rent. And she was falling for all of it. But after a while, Sue offered them a free trip to an amusement park including train tickets for Melissa, Chris, and all the kids. So nice of Sue. Oh, my gosh. And this is how the police actually got them out of the house so they could install all their surveillance equipment. That's wild. I didn't I know. even know they could really do that. Like, I don't know if you can do stuff like that here in America. I mean, this is yeah. different law enforcement than we're used to yeah. with cases because I don't think I've heard many things like that either. To build a case against somebody, you could go into their house with... I mean, maybe <laughs> they must have had some type of court order or warrant or something. I just... I don't know. I don't know how the Canadian justice system Oh, they system could works. have. Maybe Definitely. there was something that was approved to do that. But still, yeah. I'm like... But the whole coaxing them out of the house with this fake woman 
giving them free yeah. tickets to an amusement park. I don't think that happens very often. That's no. unusual. <laughs> no, that's like going to great lengths right there. That is. The police also started emailing Melissa with another fake account, this time another fake person, and it was a victim liaison officer. And they sent her emails late at night giving her information about Caleb's murder, and they were hoping to get Melissa and Chris to start talking. And in one email, the police even mentioned that there was DNA under Caleb's fingernails from an unknown person. And in separate conversations, the couple seemed to be discussing Caleb's murder and Bridget's murder as well. All while their house is bugged by mm -hmm. the police. Mm -hmm. The police listened day and night for over two months while they pieced together enough whispered conversations to arrest Melissa. And it's hard for them to hear a lot of things. A, a lot of things were marked down as unintelligible. Yeah, because they, they, yeah. they were like, even though you know they're they're in their own home, they were still like whispering, like they were still very like yeah. paranoid about their house being tapped, and it was tapped. Mm -hmm. But luckily, they were able to get enough conversation. And I mean, what they said is kind of crazy. It is. In January of 2014, Detective Phil King traveled to Nova Scotia with two arrest warrants: one for Melissa, who was 33 years old at the time, and one for Chris who was 36, and they were both taken into custody and separated. Melissa didn't say anything, well, anything really interesting during the interrogation. She just sobbed. Chris, on the other hand, adamantly denied any involvement in Bill's, Bridget's, or Caleb's death. But they knew they could eventually get it out of him, and it took a while for Chris to crack. There's a lot of interrogation footage. Um, I'm not sure how much of it is on YouTube and stuff, but in you know, news coverage of this, like ABC, hours. there was 13 hours. Well, not in the documentary, yeah. but they showed us some interesting parts of it. And there's just so much like he moved all around the room. And can you imagine interrogating someone for 13 hours or being in an interrogation for 13 hours? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but eventually he caved. They told him that the jig is up. They have DNA under Caleb's fingernails and recorded conversations from the last two months. And at that point, he decided to just go ahead and confess. I didn't like Caleb Harrison. I didn't like the way he treated my kids. I didn't like hearing all the horrific stories. It was an awful family. They treated the children like sh And I and Melissa had to live with it every day and I couldn't watch Melissa's attitude and how sorry she was for everything that was going on. And I'm telling you right now that Melissa Merritt did not know anything until after it was done. I killed Bridget Harrison and killed Harrison. How did you kill Bridget? I knocked on her door. She opened the door and pretended to have a letter to give to the children. She refused the letter, so I then forced my way into the house and I attacked her. I hit her a couple times. I then proceeded to squeeze her neck until she stopped breathing and laid on the floor. I never meant to find her. I never meant to find her. That's not the plan. That's not what I wanted. I figured that she would, someone would come home or Caleb would come home and find her. I didn't expect for come to the house. I didn't think that was going to happen. I know that. As for Caleb, I snuck out in the middle of the night. Musa had no idea. I left. I went there. I got into his house. Proceeded to go up to the bedroom. Hit him in the chest. 
and when he sprung up, we began to struggle. I threw him into the shelving unit beside his bed. He tried to bribe me with money. I didn't speak to him. I just knocked him to the ground and I proceeded to choke him. So he obviously confessed. He realized there's nothing he can do to save himself in this situation, but he did try to save Melissa. He confessed to killing Bridget and Caleb himself, but he wanted to make sure that she got accessory after the fact. Yeah, like she was just in the accessory to murder and not Mm -hmm. an actual homicide charge that they were going for. I mean, he was thinking that if I take the rap, then she'll be fine. She can, you know, I mean, they have all these kids at this point. Like, yeah what are you guys doing yeah i know they and i think they kind of were afraid that this day could come he probably in the back of his mind knew this could happen chris insisted that melissa had no idea about the murders until afterwards and that she had nothing to do with either of their deaths he also denied having anything to do with bill's death which we really have no idea about to this day yeah i mean i think but i think the family still thinks that they were involved with bill's death too seems like i do too yeah i do too The police took his confession and arranged for Melissa and Chris to be flown back to Ontario. At the airport, they were put in a private room that was bugged, and they were able to whisper to each other for over two hours, not knowing that this conversation was being recorded. Chris ended up telling her that he confessed so that she can take care of the kids and get accessory after the fact, but they wouldn't discover that the room in the airport had been bugged, just like their house, until their trial in 2017 when their conversation was played for the jury. Yeah, and I mean, that conversation's pretty... Yeah. Puts it puts it all into perspective. It shows that it Melissa up. totally knew that she was in on it this whole time. Yep, clearly. Chris and Melissa ended up being charged with Bridget and Caleb's murders, and the prosecution believed that the couple had planned these murders together, but Chris had been the one to actually carry them out. Around this time, the chief forensic pathologist went back and reviewed Bill's autopsy and concluded that his chest and neck injuries meant that he was assaulted before he died as well, Mm -hmm. which was enough evidence for the police to then charge Chris with Bill's murder as well. But unfortunately, during the trial, Chris testified and recanted his confession. He said he admitted to the murders in order to protect Melissa and out of desperation because he had been interrogated for 13 hours. He did admit to beating up Caleb, but he denied that he went to the house that night in order to murder him. Basically just said, I was going there to rough him up kind of thing and scare okay, him. Okay, so what? You guys got in a fight and then someone else came in after you and killed him? Is no, that his argument? Nobody nobody goes no. in the middle of the night. He literally left Melissa in bed in the middle of mm-hmm. the night, went to Caleb's house, broke in, yep. and beat him up, murdered him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't think anybody really believed that. No, no. He's just doing everything he can to try and save himself to the best of his ability. Well, it didn't work because in January of 2018, Chris was found guilty of first degree murder for Bridget and Caleb's deaths. Melissa was found guilty of first degree murder for her involvement in Caleb's death. However, Chris was found not guilty for the death of Bill because there just wasn't enough evidence to convict him of that, which I do understand. But both of them were sentenced to 25 years with no chance of parole. That's not very long for that. Yeah, I mean, no. Canada's different, so yeah. But I mean, I don't think that would be is, the same here. Yeah, no, I probably got life in prison with no chance. Yeah, of parole, I mean, most he likely. took two people's lives, possibly a third. Mm-hmm. I mean, a whole family died as a result. If you of kill these two. three or more people, you're considered a serial killer, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, I might be wrong. I mean, there's <laughs> different definitions of what that that means exactly, but three or more victims is. 
usually means you're a serial killer. So, but I think it also that because they're all family, I don't know if that would be the same way, but hmm. I don't, but I, I do. Yeah. I guess it's three murders. Yeah. And that's a serial killer. So, I mean, he was definitely on his way, but the fact that they just went to whatever, you know, they were willing to wipe these people off the face of the earth in order to just gain complete custody over the children is very weird. Like, so much anger built up. That makes me think there's more to the story that we don't know possibly. Because why were they so mad? To the point where they need to kill them. Like, right. And it seemed like Bridget and Bill were such great grandparents to their kids. And it, like, why were they so desperate? To- well, if you're desperate enough to kill somebody else for your kids, don't you care enough about your kids that yeah. you wouldn't want to kill their father and their grandparents? And why would the grandparents be the first pr- people they go after? And waiting the year in between the whole case is just so odd. Yeah. Well, I think it comes down to Melissa's just kind of psycho. Like, I think she's just kind of out (laughs) of her mind. And Chris was just so like head over heels in love with her and just wanted to please her. He went along with testosterone or something. Yeah. He just was like, I'll go along with anything you want. Anything for you, Melissa. It's just so wild. Because ultimately all of their six kids had to go live with Melissa's relatives. So they didn't even get what they were trying to get out of this in the first place it just makes no sense i still don't understand why he didn't get life in prison probably Mm -hmm. because it's canadian but that seems odd he should have i think i know and the harrison family still isn't satisfied i mean these two are Mm -hmm. behind bars but they believe that if bill's case had been investigated thoroughly that bridget and caleb would still be alive and i agree yeah I mean, quite possible. Yeah. If it was Chris, then yeah, they would have been, he would have been locked up. They should have had, I mean, it all came back to the autopsy Mm -hmm. and, you know, the medical examiner not having the experience in order to identify, I get, I mean, but I'm not, and I could look at that autopsy report and be like, okay, this is weird. Like, how can you just sum this up as, you know, his heart stopped? I don't know. But yeah, that's really odd. And it makes you wonder why. Like, was there a reason why they didn't want to rule it as undetermined or possible foul play or something? Why wouldn't, yeah, why wouldn't you just leave it suspicious yeah. and undetermined? It just shows you what a vital role the medical examiner truly plays. Yeah, And it how does. they could, he could have prevent, or whoever could have prevented the other yeah. two deaths if they were more, you know, thorough. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, in most cases, the autopsy really determines what the police do with the case, too. Yes. I mean, if the, the, file is closed you know the autopsy reveals that it was natural causes then the police more often not than not is going to go ahead and just say okay we agree with the the coroner mm-hmm. or the medical examiner and the case is closed it's natural causes because right police aren't medical experts so they can't say whether or not so I, I get that there is a failing from the medical examiner's office and in a large part maybe the police should have at least done a little bit more investigating into you know all these things that the family was bringing mm-hmm. up, like why was he alone in the bathroom and was he trying to lock himself away from somebody coming into the house i mean there's a lot that's of probably what it was that's a good point yeah or i mean it was pretty clear to the family that this was staged like it looked like a mm-hmm. staged scene like even the Bill's staircase death. was for sure yeah for sure so it was like bridget's the police didn't weren't able to see that this was staged and unfortunately, it seems like that happens in a lot of cases where police miss stage scenes like that happens more where they miss the fact that, you know, this could have been staged by somebody else mm-hmm. who just tried to make it look natural or make it look like, you know, they took their own life or something like that. Yes. Because those were the two things that the police were considering with Bill is that maybe he took his own life or, mm-hmm. you know, it was just he he's 
fell over and died because of a natural cause but you wonder how many cases out there especially when there's just one victim like obviously they were able to figure this out because there were other deaths that made them realize what was really going on but how many people is it just one person that dies in a suspicious way and we never know because it's ruled as something else oh i mean so probably blow our minds on how many cases are like that out there so many so i mean the family's still looking for more answers i mean they want to hold the police department accountable for mm-hmm. you know kind of messing this investigation up and why was there this major failing in the medical examiner's office because again yeah. if they had caught on to the fact that bill was most likely murdered and investigated that then caleb and bridget would still be alive today which would, yeah the whole family wouldn't have been taken out but very sad story and sad that the kids you know missed out on all three of them yeah you know that's yeah. just the saddest part of it all the kids lost in the end big time and now even melissa's kids have to grow up without their parents yeah. who are now in prison for yeah, like, like that's gonna mess all them up too got so. messed up from this totally really crazy though it is yeah let us know your thoughts on this case for sure i'm curious what you guys think all over a custody battle like mm-hmm. it's just it's wild what people will do in these types of situations but but with that being said that is where today's episode ends thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the mile higher podcast hopefully you enjoyed it if you did let us know make sure you follow us on instagram twitter at mile higher pod make sure you're subscribed on apple podcasts and youtube as well yes that helps a lot no on spotify and apple podcasts you yes. said on youtube but yeah be subscribed on youtube too but it really helps us to be a subscriber on the audio platforms even if you watch it on youtube because it helps our numbers youtube numbers are not counted so that does really help us out also be sure to check out milehiremerch.com for yes. our latest merch collection get it while you can yes definitely get something cozy for the holiday season but that's it. We will see you guys next week with another episode. A good one, too. We got yeah. a really fun one planned. So yes, we do. Get ready for that. But until next time, stay safe. And stay woke. <laughs> <laughs>